Okay. We are jumping over into Mark 11 this morning. Some people wonder why we have four different Gospels in the same Bible. Uh, but I think it's for many, many reasons. And one of those is this, is we need to remember that every one of them was authored by a person. You know, ultimately authored by God, but conveyed through a person. And those different people had different personalities. Those people had different experiences. And, and what you're going to find with each one of the stories that we have here about to the, the triumphant entry, uh, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, you're going to find that they have... Uh, the, 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 the basic thing is the same, but at the same time, they all give us details that we would not have otherwise. And so by considering all of them, uh, for all the four in unison, then we get a much better and com- more complete full picture of the whole story. And I, and I say this this morning as we go to Mark, and, I, and we're going to Mark for a reason, and that is I think the only time I've ever preached on the triumphal entry from Mark was when we went through the Gospel of Mark many, many moons ago. Mark tends to be less uh, detail-oriented, more of a kind of a rough outline uh, and that sort of thing. But anyway, we're going to be reading through uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it, and some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission, and they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around, all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Have you ever thought about the number of times that Jesus had been in Jerusalem? It was a place he went once a year, a place that he might visit on other occasions. Well, we know this. We know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and to fulfill the law perfectly. And from the Old Testament, we find that three times a year, all of the male children or all the males in Israel were supposed or required to appear before the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. So we need to understand this, that Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times. If you just add up the times that he had to be there to keep the law, then you're talking about 90-something times. 
It was a place he was very familiar with. Remember when he was 12 years old and he had gone with Joseph and Mary uh, to, to Jerusalem for the Passover and when it con- came time to leave, they were in a large company, very often families and neighbors, probably from Nazareth. They traveled together in a large group and so Mary and Joseph didn't know that Jesus wasn't there for a time and then they, they discovered that he was not with a group and they went back to Jerusalem frantically and they found him where they should have probably looked first, and that was in the temple. And he said to her, it had to be about my father's business. This trip for Jesus to Jerusalem was very different than all the others. For a time now, he's been telling his disciples, the 12, that they were going to Jerusalem and he was, going to be, he was going to be arrested by the elders and the leaders of the people. That he was going to be crucified. And he was going to die a horrible death. But even then, Jesus did not leave out one of the most crucial parts of the story. And the story was this, is that on the other side of all of that, he would be raised to life again. That he would be resurrected. The amazing thing is this, is as they get there and things begin to unfold, it's like a surprise to the disciples. They can't believe the things that are taking place. He's been telling them all along. Shouldn't have surprised anyone. Bethany, I don't know how much you know about Bethany. It was located on the Mount of Olives, a little village. It was a, it was a hometown of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Six days earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead uh, in that place. And we're told in the, in the Gospel of John that many of the people that were there that greeted Jesus as he came into Jerusalem were people that had actually witnessed him raising Lazarus from the dead. The Mount of Olives, in essence, is going to become the place of Jesus' dwelling while he is in Jerusalem this last week. We're told in the Gospels that during the daytime he would go into Jerusalem, he would go into the temple, and, uh, and during the day he would be confronted by all the... Every, every single social, political, religious group is going to send representatives to Jesus in the temple complex during that Passion Week, to challenge him with word games. And he will defeat every one of them. But in the evening, he would go back to the Mount of Olives, and he would spend the night there. Now, whether they were sleeping on the ground or maybe staying with Lazarus and his family or somewhere, we don't know the details about that. We do know that he frequented the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. He sends two of his disciples. Now, we don't know who they are. They're not named. The two of them he sends on an errand. And it's probably a pretty common thing for Jesus to do that. Later in the week, he's going to send two of them again to make preparations for the Passover supper somewhere. But he gives them instructions. 
They're going to the village opposite, and there's good reason that may be Bethphaz. Bethany was on one slope on the eastern side of Mount Olives, and Bethphaz on the other one. And as they get there, they're going to find a colt tied. Now, it's interesting, and Mark, he doesn't ever mention a donkey. He mentions a colt. Uh, but we do know for, for, for certain that it is a donkey. Uh, we're told in the Gospel of John it's a donkey. And even more than that, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which we understand is a fulfillment of this prophecy, that the king would come, and he would come, and he would come humbly, and he would come humbly mounted on a donkey. We need to understand something, and that is that what takes place here is a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You see, this happen over and over again in the life of Jesus. It's hard to even add up all of the prophecies that were fulfilled in his lifetime and the things that he did and the things that he said. How could anybody consider all of that and not, not acknowledge and recognize him? He must be the Messiah. There's no way that anyone could fulfill all of these things with not being and not being the one that they are spoken about. They're going to find a colt or a donkey tied there, which no one has ever sat on. That's kind of an unusual thing. But what I would say to you is this particular donkey was created for this particular purpose. Just like Jesus was born to a virgin. Just like Jesus' body will be laid in a, in a brand new spanking tomb. He rides on a donkey that no one else has ever ridden. Now, I don't know how many of you have, how many people here have ever ridden on a donkey? <laughs> I'll just tell you this I tried once, but the donkey was having nothing of it. I mean, my only experience with a donkey, and I've shared this, I think I share this every Palm Sunday, was when, when I was in high school, my dad was part owner of a, a Mexican restaurant in Ocala, and, and he got this wild idea that it would be cool to give away a donkey uh, as a prize in a contest. And so, you know, I'm thinking, I don't know who, who in the world wants a donkey and, and all that. But actually, there were a lot of people that put their names in the pot, and there was a young lady that, that, that won the donkey, and... It really turned out to be a curse, not only for her, but for some of their neighbors, because what happened was they didn't, she didn't have a place to keep it, but they had some neighbors who had a pasture. They had horses in it. They said, well, just bring the donkey over and put it in the, with the horses. But what happened was this, is they actually were in the city limits, and there's an ordinance about having horses in the city limits. And the donkey made so much racket, the neighbors became, began to complain. And before you know it, the people had to get rid of their, their horses and the donkey together. But during the week of that contest, my dad had built a little pen thing down at the restaurant. And so in the morning, we would load the donkey up and take it down and put it in this pen and leave it there all day so people could see it. And then we'd bring it home later in the day and, and all that. It was my brother's job and, and my job to get the donkey in 
the trailer in the morning, and let me tell you, it was not a feat that was easily done. And there was a day then we decided we were going to try to ride this donkey. And uh, my brother tried, and he came off, and I tried, and I came off. And, and the one thing about donkey you have to really be careful about is they're, they're lethal on both ends. You know, if it's not their hooves, it's their teeth. They, love, they, can, they can bite the fire out of you, and they will do it without any hesitation. It's always amazed me that people can actually tame donkeys so that you can, you can ride a donkey. Uh, I think sometimes we think that donkeys were all over the promised land, that everybody and his brother had a donkey. Uh, but I don't think that really is the accurate picture of the way things were. Is that donkeys, even though they were maybe the most common means of transportation that people had, I would imagine the majority of people never had a donkey in their whole lifetime. That most of them did their, did, did their traveling by walking. And I would imagine that most of those times, if not all those times, Jesus had gone all the way from Nazareth to Jerusalem and back. He had done it on foot. Maybe riding in a wagon on occasion or something like that. Uh, I, I was thinking the other day about this. What would be close to it? Some of you went to Honduras. And you can remember when we did the VBS down in the village, all the kids that were there. And one of the things that stood out, there was one boy that had a horse. I mean, it was a mangy, skinny, looked like it was half-dead horse that he was probably the most popular kid in the whole village because now he could ride the places he wanted to go to. He didn't have to walk everywhere. And so you can imagine that there were a lot of those kids that were buddy-buddy with him hoping that they would be able to ride on his horse uh, on occasion. Now, when we think about donkeys, we don't think about kings and, and generals leading armies. Let's put this in perspective of what we talked about in Revelation chapter 19 last week. The coming of the king on that white war horse. One of the points I want to make here is this, is that he's, he's described here as being humble. If you look at Zechariah 9, 9, it talks about this king is coming and the king is humble. We understand that he was coming on a mission and, 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 and being humble had a very big part to do with that mission. Subjecting himself to people, their abuse. And all of that. But we understand that when he comes again, there won't be any of that. He's not coming humbly. He's coming mightily. He's coming powerfully. There were people who doubted that the king had really come here. But there would be nobody on the planet of the earth that would doubt that the king has come when Jesus comes again. I would imagine part of this, too, is this, that Jesus seemed to have a very calming effect on people. I mean, the gentleness, it was just, it just displayed by him over and over and over again, that there was a calmness about him that, that brought peace to the hearts 
a people that sat and listened to him and, and watched him do the things that he did. And I think that all of us know something of that. He gave them instructions if anyone said anything to them about taking the donkey. Now, you need to understand something. Like we said before, I would imagine this. The donkeys were very much prized possessions in those days. If you had one, you probably wanted to cling on to it pretty tightly. And I would imagine that there was somewhat of a black market donkey thing going on. There were no, not, not that many donkeys to go around, so the people who had them wanted to keep them. And any time there's ever that kind of a picture, you know that there are going to be people going around stealing donkeys and selling them on the black market. That's not far-fetched. That's not hard for us to kind of picture happening. So you could imagine, I would imagine that these disciples had some degree of leeriness Jesus is telling them, go to this place, find this donkey. You don't know the people. You don't know the donkey. Untie it and bring it to me. I would imagine that the whole time they're praying that no one will see what they're doing and no one will, will, will say a thing about it. But another thing we need to take note of here is the faithfulness of their disciples. Jesus sent them on an errand, and probably for some reason it was an uncomfortable errand. He didn't give them all the details that they might like to have had. But one of the important things for us to understand is he told them to go, and they went. They didn't have all their answers. You know, I can imagine probably me and some other people in this room, if Jesus said something like that to us, we would start questioning. <laughs> it wouldn't be, this is what I want you to do, go do it. We would want to have answers to all kinds of questions before, not that we weren't going to go, but we'll, we'll go when Jesus explains in de- more detail why we're going, how long we've got to go, who, who are the na- who's the name of the people we're getting it from, what's the name of the donkey maybe, so that we can get on friendly terms. You know, let's face it, some of us really are detailed people. We want all of our I's dotted and our T's crossed before we're willing to do much of anything. But let me just say this to you this morning. That if you've never gone somewhere that you felt Jesus was calling you to go to and never had any sense of fear and trepidation, Maybe you haven't gone to all the places Jesus wants you to go to. He wants a lot from us. And one of those things is this, is to understand that we are absolutely and totally dependent upon him completely. There are people in this room today that are treading ground that they never wanted to go to. But I want to remind us this morning that you are where you are because you have an almighty God, a loving Father has brought you to that place. He has purpose in it. He may not see it. He may have all kinds of questions that are not answered. 
But he's, he is, he's all powerful. There's nothing that comes upon any of us that is not by his hand. And it's always for our betterment. And it's always part of his mission for us. So they went and they found the donkey tied at the door. And they untied it. Probably hoping that no one would notice. But there were some people standing nearby. What are you doing? Untying the colt. I would imagine there was a little bit of fear that probably gripped their heart at that point. <laughs> yeah, Jesus sent us to do this. He didn't really tell us this, that, and the other, etc., etc., etc. Now we're going to get in trouble. But he told them what to say, and when they say, that is all that is needed to be said. Sometimes we stumble, fumble around about what we need to say to people that we're trying to witness to. And sometimes we just need to be reminded that we need to be faithful in telling them what the Lord has told us. They tell them what, uh, what Jesus had told them to say, and they're fine with it. The Lord needs it, and as soon as he's done with it, bring it right back. Good enough. So they brought it to Jesus. And notice here that they put their garments on it. I would imagine that you and I, if we went home and started looking through our closet and our drawers, that we would have lots of garments. Some of us more than others. One of the things Lori and I started doing a few years back is that once a year she goes through the whole house and I go through the garage. And, and I go through my clothes and my, the closet and my drawers about once a year. And things that we're not using, we put them in a bag and we take them to Annie Johnson. One of the things that blew my mind about, about my mom at my, my dad passing away and us moving my mom out of our house was how much stuff they accumulated. My dad literally had hundreds of pairs of slacks hanging in his closet. And he had two or three shirts to go along with every pair of pants. I don't know how many suits he had, how many pairs of shoes he had. And then there was the other side of the closet. And let me tell you, this was a massive closet. My mother had just as much stuff as he did or more. But we need to understand that the culture we're talking about here, people's garments were precious to them because they had precious little. Poverty was a big thing. And it was not uncommon for those four people to have only maybe one pair of clothes. There's actually an Old Testament law that says that if you, if you lend to someone, you can use 
their, their cloak or their outer garment is surety, but you have to give it back to them by the end of the day because if you don't, they won't have any way to stay warm that night. Lori and I saw some degree of this in Uganda. Garments are precious. Most of the clothes that people had there were clothes that had been donated, and they, they came from all over the place. And, and, and no one was worried about do these britches match the shirt, and you know, are there socks that go along with it, or or, or, or how many different colors of belts do you need to have to match all your shoes, and this, that, and the other. These people were just joyful. They had a garment to wear. Period. It was like one of their most treasured possessions. And I would imagine that would be true for these disciples. They were traveling with Jesus and they were traveling light. Remember the instructions that Jesus gave to them that when they went out? Not to take a lot of garments. I would imagine fishermen had a lot of extra money to buy lots of clothes and things like that. My whole point here is this. They didn't have a whole lot to give Jesus. But they gave him what they had. To use as a saddle on the donkey. They didn't seem to do it with any reservation either. Jesus sat on the donkey. Jesus, the donkey no one else had ever sat on before. That calming effect. How many times do you think that has ever happened in the history of donkeys? The first time someone sat on them? It's not only these disciples, but as Jesus makes his headway down the road, all the people that are gathered begin to spread their garments in the road. And others took leafy branches according to Mark or palm branches according to John. So they cut from the fields. They were laying down the gold carpet for the king. The sad thing is this, it is as the week unfolds, they're going to find out that Jesus is a very different king than they anticipated. I mean, they've been waiting for this Messiah person to come for a very long time through the history of Israel, right? And their expectation is that this, this, this mighty king who comes is going to be uh, a king as David was, and David was known for many things, but he was, he's known as being the warrior king, the one who defeated all of his enemies. So their biggest hope probably that, uh, for the average person had nothing at all to do with being saved from their sins. It had to do with being delivered from the Roman occupation. 
And how do we know that's true? We know that's true because, as we read here, they were singing Hosanna today. But by the end of the week, some of those very lips will be saying, screaming, crying out, crucify him. Are people fickled or what? Osana is actually a compound word. It does sense is a prayer. It is a prayer. It is a plea to be saved. It's a Hebrew word. Psalm 103, verse 47 says this, Save us, our Lord God, gather us to give thanks to thy holy name. Glory in thy praise. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. See, you're reflected there. See, that's reflected there. They're looking for the king like David. They're looking for the mighty king. We've already said this. And that is that the king is come, but the king is coming again. And when he comes, he will be that king of power and might, not humbleness. Every knee will bow on this planet. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Some because it's their passion of their heart to do so. They can do nothing else. They can do nothing less. But some will bend their knee and confess. Simply because they have no choice. They would rather not. Jesus has a long and difficult week ahead of him. But notice here that when he came into the city, he went directly to the temple. The temple he had been in so many times before. This time that coming was very different. We're told they just looked around and we can imagine that the the crowd there was just tremendous. 
You may not realize that the Jerusalem in the days of the Passover, its population would just multiply into unbelievable measures. They estimate sometimes there could have been close to a million people in Jerusalem in a town that typically only had a population of maybe tens of thousands. But it would swell with people during the high holy days. There would be people in that crowd that would love him and would welcome him. But we know that there are people who do not. The last day before things start to heat up even more. The last day before those things that Jesus has been telling his disciples all along would begin to take place that would lead to his death and then to his resurrection. watching a movie the other day and I just I you know sometimes you hear things said in movies that make sense and you just kind of kind of lay on I haven't thought about it in a long time but there's a conversation going on about war and one of them said this that that that, that, that there's a there's a peace that only comes sometimes on the other side of war Jesus is about to fight the battle I want us this week to think about these things. So easy to come and, and rejoice and, and all of that on Easter, and we're going to do that. We're going to celebrate like all gangbusters on Easter because of the resurrection. It's so easy sometimes for us to jump beyond all of the nasty, messy stuff that took place during the week before all that happens. And I want you to be thinking about these things as we prepare and we get ready for Monday, Thursday. There's a somberness about Monday, Thursday. You need to understand that. I've always wondered why the heck we call Good Friday, Good Friday. You can understand Sunday being Good Sunday. Good Friday, good. I want us to remember as well why Jesus came, what promoted, what caused him to come. And I would say two things. One is a hatred of sin, period. An aberration of sin. The other one is the love for sinners in spite of it. I want us to remember as we're approaching Monday, Thursday, that it's 
just so easy for us to look around and we can always find really bad people around us. You know, we do it to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, I know I messed that up and I did this, that, and the other, but look what so-and-so did. I would never do that. I'd never think about doing something like that. We need to be very careful about going there. Because one of these days, the Lord might just let let you see what you really are capable of doing. And you are capable of doing unbelievable stuff. Every one of us. There's enough sin in us that we could still do just about anything you can possibly imagine and some things you probably can't. The Lord has his hand upon us. He keeps us reeled in. Do you understand that he restrains our sin? And only his power can do that. We can't. No one in this room is better than anybody else in this room. Everyone in this room desperately needs grace. And without God's grace, no one's saved. No, not one. Not one single one. We are saved by grace through faith. And even that is a gift from God. So I pray this week that we would remember these things. That our sin is what brought all this about. That we're as responsible for it as anybody else is. But nonetheless, Jesus loves us. sinners that we are. And that ought to be a lesson to us. That we would love each other. Knowing that every time we love somebody, we're loving a sinner. Knowing that they're going to say something sometimes that we don't like. Knowing that they're going to do something sometimes that we don't think they ought to do. But just as much as he is my Lord and my Savior, he is their Lord and their Savior. He loves them just as much as he loves me. He's done for them everything he's done for me. We need to love. The world needs it. The church needs it. People need it. Desperately. They will find it nowhere else. So prepare yourself for Monday, Thursday. We're going to have, like we always do, a time of confession. James tells us to confess our sins to one another, that it's good for us to do that. Because you know what happens every time we do this? We're all sitting here thinking, someone's talking, and and most of us are thinking at the same time, that sounds just like me. I could have said the very same. One of the reasons we do confession is so that we understand, and it shows very clearly that we are as we are, that no one here is perfect, that no one has been perfected. And I want to encourage you to do the fasting. I know some of you can't physically do that. There's something about it. You know, you'll come here and 
And, and, and I think it really does help us prepare to take the Lord's Supper in a way that otherwise it wouldn't. It's not just a meal of the day. It becomes the meal of the day. So think about it. You don't have to. No one's going to ask you if you did or not. And I would encourage you not to tell people if you're doing it or not. Because the only reason we would do that was to make them know that we're being righteous by doing what we're doing. Keep it a secret. Okay. Praise team's going to come and prepare us or close us.